0: I'm Emily and I am coming at you with years of experience uh, talking and mostly talking a lot about a lot of different subjects and also usually talking very quickly. Um, I am purposefully slowing down right now, but I warn you, I am very excitable. And when that happens, I speak very quickly. Anyways, I do all of this Um, subject talking to all of my friends and family who probably don't care, but are kind enough to not tell me that in those words. Instead, they say things like, oh, cool. Yeah. Like I, I don't really follow politics, you know, or, oh my God, when do you sleep? Because all I talk about are all of the articles and podcasts and books and news segments and all of these different things that I'm nearly constantly consuming. Uh, this is the information age, right? <laughs> so folks, I finally did it. I started talking to myself, and now that I'm talking to myself, I've decided to put a mic to it. I have very few talents, none of which are interesting. Um, if you want a list, I can give you a list, but I promise it'll be very short, other than my one seemingly useless talent, but I'm really good at, obsessing and synthesizing information obsessing over and synthesizing information rather Um, one thing separate. It's kind of creepy, you know, like obsessing and by itself is kind of stalkery um, sounding, suggesting and synthesizing just has its own creepy vibes, but no together obsessing and synthesizing. When I have conversations, I'm super awkward and it's partially because I grab on to the oddest parts of conversations also true with literature. So when you're like doing group reading, I'm going to always pick the oddest things. It's almost never the main point. It's usually because of some odd connection I have to some seemingly unrelated thing. So I weave this web of ideas synthesizing the ideas and thoughts of others and I just kind of run with it. It's not that I speak over people's heads by any means. My point is usually is some intersection down the road that, they, that they're just not there yet or it hasn't come up yet and I'm maybe not the best at getting them to that point. So I guess this pod is really a way to see if I'm crazy or if my intuition is right and there are people that want to enter this space with me. And that overall, I think that we can make a difference here. This isn't a call to action unless you feel called to act. So what is this pod? This pod is a space to talk about the headlines, sometimes the big headlines, but mostly the small ones. Exploring these stories is what makes things feel real to me and urgent, impossible to me. These will range from simple policy changes that make big news, include things like the decriminalization of drugs, which have huge impacts especially on the black and brown communities in America. But also just the economy, the environment, our social issues, our political world, our everything, Uh, the the prison complex, uh, systemic racism, and the continued oppression of underrepresented groups, including our disabled populations, and with a special emphasis on inclusion of our trans brothers and sisters. But also the policy changes that are simple, like admin changes, like that one admin change was just an update, an administrative change to a form when you got your driver's license that had a pre-checked box to register you to vote. And if you don't wanna register, you just uncheck the box. But if you wanted to register, you go ahead and leave it checked. And this actually resulted in double the voter registration in that area, which is incredible and huge and inspiring to me. This podcast is also about the magic of deep and loving community organizing. I am ever grateful for the people we've had the opportunity to learn from that came before us, like John Lewis, um, currently Stacey Abrams, AOC, also like DeRay, I, I love him. I love the podcast, Pod Save the People. Not an advertisement, I just am truly inspired and find that, pod to be incredible and magical and highly recommend it to all of the people. This pod is about the things that I always talk about, what I was always told that we shouldn't talk about, you know, the hard stuff, politics, religions, money, and the intersection of all of those and what those intersections can and do mean. They're not always polite, but necessary. (laughs) What does that even mean? All I know is that we can and should talk about this stuff. This podcast is about what I believe in, my religion, if you will, and it's full of trauma and heartache, love and listening and honor and beauty and always science. Wait, let me emphasize that, you know, listening, honor, beauty, trauma, the heartache, the love, all that stuff and always science. I am so grateful to share this space with you and I am so glad that we can talk about that. This week, while perusing my Instagram feed, I came across a video posted by Hawk Newsome, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter New York, and this video highlighted the death of Quan Bobby Charles, a 15-year-old Black child that was found dead in a sugarcane field in Louisiana. I wanted to bring attention to this ongoing homicide investigation, which at the time of this recording still has no arrest, which has given many of us cause for hesitation and Honestly, to question whether or not the police were involved or in the very least, not fully carrying out their duty to serve and protect their community, all of which we'll talk about. Other than what we know about this ongoing investigation thus far, I wanted to talk about what seems to me to be a big connection in this story. The location of this young boy's body, the sugarcane field in which his body, lifeless, was found several days after he was reported missing by his mother. I wanted to talk about that cultural significance and the historical significance of this industry and the economic impact it's had on our country and at the cost of the black lives and black labor and black magic and ingenuity that were all lost as a result of the expansion of this industry. Let's begin with the ongoing homicide investigation of Bobby Charles. What we know, it was attempted to be reported that 15-year-old Bobby Charles was missing by his mother on October 30th. But police at that time declined to launch a search or investigation and instead reportedly told his mother that he was likely at a football game. The police did not even attempt to ping his phone for an additional three days. Bobby was found dead on November 3rd near Louisville, Louisiana, almost 25 miles away from his home in Baldwin. We now know that Bobby left his father's home with two white individuals 17-year-old Gavin Irving and his mother, Janet Irving, both of whom were reportedly high on mushrooms at the time they collected the youth. It's important to note that Bobby's parents did not give permission for Bobby to leave with these individuals, nor did they even know the Irvins prior to this devastating event. Gavin says that that same evening, October 30th, Bobby left his residence on his own accord and that that was the end of it. On November 3rd, Bobby's body was found near Crete, in Louisville, Louisiana, about 25 miles from where he lived in Baldwin, in the town of residence for the Urbans. The field where he was found was actually the backyard of the trailer in which they were living, though they've since been evicted for reportedly unrelated reasons. The preliminary autopsy report has ruled that the cause of death was drowning, and this is based on muddy water in the airwaves, hyperinflated lungs, and water in the sphenoid sinuses. What has helped to bring some media attention to the case are some photos that the family took and released of the deceased body. Bobby's face was severely mangled and disfigured and the autopsy report suggests that these injuries occurred post-mortem, very likely due to wildlife in the area. The family was not confident in this narrative and launched a crowdfunding campaign to pay for an independent second autopsy to be performed on the body while they wait for the complete results of the first, which is expected to take about 12 weeks. The second autopsy should be completed in about eight weeks. Other details that stick out to the family and activist at this time include that the police has yet to share the information with the family on the exact location of where the body was found and when and how his body was moved from the water. The area he is believed to have been found only has water ankle deep and that makes the accidental drowning a very unlikely event unless other details are missing from the story. At this time, the second autopsy preliminary results that suggest that the official cause of death is drowning and also agrees that the face injuries occurred post-mortem. What is yet to be determined is whether the drowning of Bobby was natural or accidental, homicidal or suicidal. Also, was the handling of this case by police negligent? I wonder, did they follow proper protocol? And if not, would doing so have saved Bobby's life? And if it wouldn't have saved his life, How can we change these protocols to ensure that lives like Bobby's are saved in the future? If protocols are either not followed or inadequate, we have to determine why they are these things and we need to begin to implement those solutions now. Ultimately, is this a cover-up of a hate crime and are the police complacent? Is this a symptom of something much bigger? And how can we address this thoughtfully and immediately? I'm gonna continue to follow this case. I know Bobby's family deserves answers and justice and his story definitely deserves to be told. Now, as mentioned at the top of the episode, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the sugar industry and its historical context for foundational Black Americans. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, the average American consumes almost 152 pounds of sugar in one year, which is like three pounds of sugar consumed each week. You can fact check me on that if you want. Did anyone else just have like that weird flashback to learning about the body in elementary school and seeing that giant tub of lard or, or whatever it is that they use to symbolize fat in the body. I don't know what the substance was, but it was like this discolored yellow color and hella gross anyways. It's safe to say that most of us love sugar, and it'd be really hard to imagine a world without it. To begin to even do that, we'd have to go back to about 10,000 BC before sugar took over. And before sugar took over, honey was the sweetie in charge. With the exception of the icy parts, bees used to be all over Europe, Africa, and Asia. In the Americas, however, instead of sugar, we used agave nectar, tree syrup, and mashed fruit to accomplish really similar goals. So sugar is native to and was first cultivated in New Guinea. In the OG days, also known as about 6,000ish years ago, people would extract or use the sugar by chewing on the ends of the reeds. And about 2,000 years after that, sugar found its way by boat to the Philippines and India, where things really took off. This is where, in India, sugar would first become refined. Sugar mills were described in Indian texts as far back as like 180. So in 327 AD approximately, you know, the Greeks and the Romans were introduced to the white gold during their travels to India. These folks brought sugar back to the Mediterranean with them and they traded it with physicians for medicinal purposes. Uh, and it was used for things like wound healing and treating indigestion and other stomach ailments. In the 600s, during the Arab expansion, the Arabs took over Persia and gained access to sugar. And this was pretty big because by 650, the Arabs were considered masters at growing, refining and cooking with sugar. And this is a a theme or a trend that we're gonna keep seeing is that each time it was introduced to a new area, it boomed. It got bigger and better and the, the process became more efficient. So at this time, while sugar was really taking off, It was still considered a delicacy and was really reserved only for the wealthy. Folks were using it to make dishes like marzipan. And I also, I found this fascinating in all of the traditional classist ways that people are. Um, But it was trendy to have sugar sculptures at fancy parties. I'm not really sure on how we got from there to ice and that would probably make a good pot at some point. But yeah, fancy parties, sugar sculptures, no sugar for the poor. So under the Arab rule, the Egyptians became exceptionally skilled at refining sugar and they became known for creating the purest and whitest product. Using the term under Arab rule is really important here because that's where the implied power comes in. And that's really important because the entire process of growing and refining sugar is absolutely backbreaking, completely dangerous work. And it really was reserved and often forced upon the considered lower class people and rum type of sugar molasses. The waste of this could be further manipulated and used to make rum while the sugar product was packaged and sent off for sale. These plantations were basically operating as both farm and factory and operated day and night, six days a week, increasing the workload and the probability of the enslaved people being injured, double the exploitation. Let's scratch the surface of the process and just give a better idea of what this labor looked like because it certainly wasn't paper pushing and it was boats more difficult than nearly any other job at the time. To prepare an area for planting, the the land must first be cleared and prepped, which is its own unique and variable degree of difficulty, depending on where you are. Then the laborers would do what was called cane holing by first digging squares that were about four to six feet wide and six to nine inches deep. The removed dirt would be mounted along the perimeter of each square as a sort of boundary. This work was done mostly by hose, the tool, which made it especially difficult work and each person was expected to dig like 60 to 100 squares a day during this part of the season. That's something like 1500 cubic feet a day having to be moved of of dirt. So then once the squares are established, two young sugarcane plants would go into each of these evenly spaced apart, of course. Next, these huge baskets that held like 80 pounds of manure each were used to bring manure to each square. This was generally carried atop of the enslaved people's heads. Each basket, the, the giant 80 pound ones, had enough manure for two young plants or just one square. So, for one acre of sugarcane, you could expect to use like 1.25 tons of manure all carried by basket on the heads of people who were given no voice in society and more often than not, no other choice. Can you think of a shittier way of life, literally? This backbreaking work was primarily done, as we'll talk about in a moment, by black bodies. Once settlers quickly killed off the indigenous people of the areas they stole, black bodies were brought by ship to complete the grueling work. Once planted, the areas were tended to for weeds and maintained as well as guarded from competing wildlife, so trapping animals was a part of this as well. The work was never easy, it was never done. When it came time in the winter to harvest the crop, this involved a lot of hacking and cutting down the cane, bundling it and loading it up for the next step of the process. For those that don't know, the cane itself is very heavy and difficult to manage. The juice inside the sugar cane, if not processed in two days, the juice inside the cane spoils and becomes unusable, which is obviously a waste of everyone's time. The bundled cane is then brought to a mill, and this mill would either be powered by water or wind or animals and sometimes even humans. The enslaved people would feed the cane into these giant roller type things, which crushed the cane, releasing the juice which would be caught in a giant pan or vat sort of thing. From there, it traveled by pipe to a large vat in a hot, hot, hot boiler house. One thing I wondered about and then discovered was actually a thing that happened was that naturally, because of the intense and difficult nature of this work, paired with the physical and mental and spiritual exhaustion of the people, bad things happened. On multiple occasions, a person's arm got caught in the rollers and was crushed at that point you'd have to use an axe or something equally as sharp or similar to detach the person from their crushed limb yet another atrocity that these people were exposed to during their already inhumane treatment the boiler house was so hot because as the name suggests the vats were kept boiling by small fires under each of them an enslaved worker that was considered especially skilled was given the role of the boiler. And this person determined when each batch of juice was reduced and purified enough that it was ready to move on to the next step. And they would then direct it to be moved to another smaller vat to continue to reduce and to continue to purify until it was ready to be moved again. This process would repeat five or six times as the juice became darker and thicker. Eventually, the boiler would determine that that syrupy substance was nearly ready to crystallize and it would be tempered using lime juice and moved to an unheated vat for cooling. Once cooled, it was transferred to clay pots and held onto for a few days. After about four days expired, these small holes that were in the bottom of the pots would be opened and molasses would drain out. The waste product of this, or the runoff, is what would be further used to make rum, and what remained inside the clay pot was the semi-refined sugar, which could then be packaged and sent off. So about one gallon of that OG cane juice came out to be about one pound of semi-refined brown sugar called muscovade. Between the heat of the fields and the flash of the cysts and the smoke in the boiler house and the physical work of the planting and manuring and guarding and cutting and bundling and cleaning paired with the unbelievably long hours, this work was cruel and horrendous. And I'm not doing the folks that that worked these fields and in these houses any justice because it was hard and it was devastatingly difficult on the mind and the bodies of the workers. Uh, a planter in Barbados, Edward Littleton, he estimated way back when that if a plantation owner or a sugar master had a hundred enslaved people that were for the purpose of sugarcane production, he would kill all of them within 19 years from just the work alone. From 1748 to 1788, over 335,000 Africans, West Africans, were brought to Jamaica for the purpose of sugarcane. And over one third of them died in the name of producing that sugar. Back to sugar's journey through the world. In the 1400s, when the Spanish colonized the Canary Islands, they set up plantations and enslaved the indigenous people that were already established in that area, destroying their crops and their way of living off the land, in addition to killing them by hand and disease. It didn't take long for the islands to become deforested and for sugar production to slow way down. Both luckily and unfortunately, the governor of the Canary Islands had given Christopher Columbus a sugarcane plant, which would become the first planted in the new world. That asshole Columbus brought that plant to Hispaniola, which is like Haiti in the Dominican Republic. And just 23 years later in 1516, Hispaniola was the most important sugar producer in the new world. In 1583, a Portuguese colony that couldn't keep up with Brazil in production began to export people from West Africa to Brazil and the New World Islands to work on these plantations. So instead of competing with the production, they decided to sell the labor. Soon after this, Brazil really began to dominate things and the Mediterranean sugar industry just collapsed. By the 1600s, coffee and tea and chocolate had finally made their way to Europe and all of these things led to a much higher sugar consumption than alcohol had. The price of sugar dropped and its popularity absolutely soared, increasing the the reliance on enslaved labor. We'll pivot now more towards America, which was no exception to the sugar craze. I watched a PBS little news hour special on sugar in the Americas, and it was great. I highly recommend it. I'll include that link in the show notes. So sugar and cotton are basically to blame for the infrastructure of our current capitalistic economy. Abundance of land was stolen, tons of labor was stolen, and you you really can't compete with that economic efficiency. In the beginning, Khalil Muhammad tells us, sugar was the most dominant economic incentive for European colonization of the Americas, both North and South. The industry had a really big, important hand in shaping the systems of labor and capital in our country from its birth all the way through reconstruction and into today's present. The Rhode Island colonies had rum distilleries, Connecticut launched slave ships, labor practices, and after finding its way there through the refugees from the Haitian Revolution, which is yet another subject for another pod that would be truly incredible and fascinating and has so much to do with the sugar industry and enslaved people as well, but those refugees really brought and cultivated the sugar industry in Louisiana and by 1830 Louisiana had the largest sugar refinery in the world and turned out about 6,000 tons of sugar a year. By that same time in 1830 Philadelphia and New York City each had about 11 refineries each and Baltimore was just behind them. In 1808 the U.S. banned the import of foreign captives. Unfortunately they they, being the sugar masters, found a way around this. The Louisiana sugar masters began to bring in bondsmen from Maryland, Virginia, and the Carolinas as their workers, as theirs were routinely sick, maimed, and killed by the work. Between 1830 and 1850, in 1751, sugarcane was first recorded grown on what is now the U.S. land between 1830 and 1850, sugar consumption in America doubled. Sugar was more expensive than cotton to produce as it required more resources, as well as that it killed a higher ratio of those that had to work in it. It was a massive capital investment, perhaps the largest. Some of the most skilled workers in America were doing the most backbreaking and work for nothing themselves it was all about economic efficiency. I want to keep saying that because it was truly all about economic efficiency. To gain funding, the sugar masters created property banks and basically took out mortgages on the people that they enslaved. And eventually, some states issued state bonds to promise payout to investors in the event that the human backed securities failed. Because you know, they weren't concerned about humans being property, they were just concerned that the property could expire. The industry boomed, slavery boomed. By 1853, three in five of Louisiana's enslaved people worked in the sugar industry. The industry was expanded literally because of slave back credit, like you would use your home to mortgage to back a loan. This blows my mind. In the 1830s, the U.S. domestic slave trade increased 84% over the previous decade, which allowed the sugar industry to remain relatively unscathed during financial downfall that almost all the other industries kind of saw at the time in the 1840s and 1850s. In 1858, the invention of the mason jar drove the demand for white sugar through the roof as it was really important for the process of canning. As we entered reconstruction, Sugar estates were still so pricey that it was nearly impossible for a freed person to even afford them, and white people continued to dominate the land ownership and thus the industry. With usually slightly higher wages than that of cotton plantations, black workers found themselves still in the field, and alas, the racial hierarchy was preserved. In 1875, the Hawaiian Reciprocity Treaty helped make sugar more available to ordinary Americans. This was between the then Hawaiian Kingdom and the United States, and it guaranteed a duty-free market for Hawaiian sugar in exchange for special economic privileges for the US. In 1887, sugar masters were afraid of some worker organization unions that were beginning to pop up and they became unbelievably violent. The thorough massacre marks the death of dozens of black workers and the terrorization of hundreds more, which was all in the efforts to break a strike, which was supported by the Knights of Labor. Workers ended up returning to work on the owner's terms, which is not what's desired in that situation. In 1925, during prohibition, vending machines began dispensing soda, a nasty little habit that we've never looked back from. I say as I pop the can of my favorite carbonated delight. In 1942, the U.S. Department of Justice investigated the recruiting practices of the second largest national producer, the U.S. Sugar Corp, which is out in South Florida. They were promising recruits the world, or in the very least, a really great gig, but it turned out that they were charging them and putting them in debt for things like housing and meals and that the laborers were actually really only earning $1.80 a day. In the 1970s, artificial sweeteners came about and they began to reduce sugar intake, but at the same time, sugar intake is also on a rise. Today, sugar cane accounts for about 40 to 45 percent of the total sugar produced in the United States and sugar beet accounts for about 55 to 60 percent. America's sugar industry is still booming, and it's still seeped in controversy. The Louisiana industry alone is a $3 billion industry and supplies about 6,400 jobs. The sugar industry continues to have its ugly past and is bringing those practices into today. The Child Labor Coalition published in 2016 the top 12 products produced with child labor around the world, and wouldn't you know? Number six on that list was sugar. 12 countries were listed as exploiting miners for the industry and I named a shame so those 12 in alphabetical order are Belize, Bolivia, Colombia, Burma, the Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Guatemala, Kenya, Mexico, Panama, Paraguay, the Philippines, Thailand, and Uganda. What was once a delicacy reserved for the elite is now most prominent in lower class households. Studies show that sugary food is often more affordable and more available. Ooh, food deserts. We could talk about food deserts in another episode too. Remind me. Anyways, we know that sugar consumption is linked to diabetes, obesity, and even cancer, all of which are some of the top killers in America and all of which disproportionately impact the working class and disproportionately impact our black and brown communities. A system was created on the back of Black people that continue to this day, maim, kill, and destroy the Black body. If you needed more of a reason to reduce your sugar intake, there you have it, folks. To learn more about slavery on sugarcane plantations, I encourage you to read the book 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northup to learn more about the history of sugarcane in America, I really encourage you to check out the incredible New York Times article that Khalil Gibran Muhammad wrote as part of the 1619 project and it's titled The Sugar That Saturates the American Diet Has Barbaric History as the White Gold That Fueled Slavery. If you didn't catch that, I'll put these things down in the show notes being here. That was a lot, but now that we're here, isn't it quite odd that Bobby was found 25 miles from his home in a sugar cane field, having drowned in ankle deep water and was left lying there for days? Was finding the body of Kwan Bobby Charles in a sugarcane field a coincidence or yet another dog whistle and signal that racist America is very much alive and hungry? Please join his family in the fight for justice and truth. We can talk about these things and we absolutely have to Also, please research the companies and the products you buy from and use. And if you're looking for something to do this quarantine, go back and count the number of times I said the word sugar in this episode. I have a feeling it was quite a lot. Thanks for listening. I hope you continue to do so. And I'm really glad we can talk about this.